YPK Movie Fans, it's your favorite Western movie podcast, Film Frontier, back with another great one, um, or maybe one of the greatest. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. And today that movie is, well, uh, before we I reveal what it is, I'm going to say how it was advertised. Okay. We'll tease for you. Oh, interesting. I mean, you, you know what the movie is, <laughs> but our audience doesn't. Uh, it was described as the beauty of its production, the humanness of its characters. The superb suspense of its action all combine into that gratifying rarity, a great motion picture. Mm, wow. Those are in capital letters. Those are, those are strong words. Yeah. Well, that movie is Stagecoach from 1939. That's right. Uh, like, like Felicity said, this is one of the big ones, one of the biggest, in fact. Not, not just for the Western, but for movies in general. It would change the course of, of films for the next, you know however many years like its influence carries on today i think mm-hmm. this movie was uh directed by john ford mm-hmm. who from this point on it makes him the preeminent maker of westerns it launches him into his mature period with many masterpieces to come it turns john wayne into a star mm-hmm. uh, rescues him and the genre itself from a b-movie poverty poverty row purgatory mm-hmm. it carries a lot of weight this film <laughs> it does it created basically the adult a western, mm-hmm. set the genre on a path uh, that would reach its peak in the fifties, and then continue really strongly through the sixties before it finally kind of petered out again. And we can dig more into how that came about, what what came before, and how this really transformed it later. But before we do that, uh, I just want to briefly lay out the the plot. And to do that, uh, normally we sort of make make up our own plot. But once again, I'm gonna take from the same thing that I just quoted from, which was the movie booklet for the film, which I found very interesting in my research. Hmm. I don't know if you came across it. I did not. I did not. So here's the plot they gave, which I thought summed it up pretty well. Stagecoach presents a small group of people against the background of the panoramic West. They're a likely group of people, a representative group. Yes, you could call them an ordinary, everyday group of people. Yet behind each of them lurks his or her individual story. Ahead of each of them looms a personal future of much hope, but little certainty. They are thrown together for a trip by stagecoach. In 48 hours, they will separate along paths as widely diverse as those which brought them together. Yet before the journey is over, some of them will have good reason for hate. Two of them will have discovered love. There will be death. There will even be the birth of one new life. Within the narrow confines of a stagecoach, life goes on. And another brilliant page in history is written. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a description. Yeah. And I want to come back to even more from that movie booklet because I thought it was amazing to see the like how it was advertised at the time. Right. The publicity machine at work. Exactly. That sounds really over the top. But isn't it a pretty good description <laughs> yeah, it is. Of, of what happens? Yeah, you. I mean, essentially, you just got a group, diverse group of people on a stagecoach, and we right. follow their journey. A bunch the of social West. misfits, primarily. In our streamlined world today, adventure takes wings. Planes shuttle across country at amazing speed. Man has raced around the earth in less than four days. Planes roar at 400 miles an hour. Airships. Streamlined trains and buses speed thousands to new frontiers. Yet well within the span of our memory, the streamliner of its day, the American stagecoach, crossed the uncharted rugged west, bringing new people to a new country. 
What fascinating stories there were in the life of the stagecoach. And in the lives of its courageous passengers who found romance in danger and understanding in strange companionships. From the adventures of these American frontier characters, John Ford has created a truly great motion picture, Stagecoach. A drama as forceful and as true as the informer, and as gripping as the hurricane. So basically, to, to start us off, you have to understand the state of the Western in the late 1930s. In 1930, Raoul Walsh had made the epic Western The Big Trail. It was a 70mm production, cost $2 million, huge, huge production, and it was an epic failure. $2 million is a big budget for yeah, the Yeah, $2 time. million just, was a huge budget. Just to clarify, yes. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound because like much now. Because it sounds like pennies today. Yes, that's a uh, independent film nowadays. Yeah. But the film was a flop with critics and audiences, mm-hmm. and it... It killed the Western. Basically, all the Westerns, pretty much from through the 30s, were low-grade B-movies from studios like Republic and Monogram. Uh, there was the occasional A-Western, like The Plainsman from C.B. DeMille or Law & Order starring Walter Houston, things mm-hmm. like that. But generally, people did not take the Western seriously. Mm-hmm. So enter John Ford at this point. Now, Ford had started his career making Westerns in the silent pictures. His first film uh, was Straight Shooting in 1917 with Harry Carey Sr., who he made a number of movies with. He also worked with people like Hoot Gibson and Tom Mix. And he he made dozens of westerns in the in the 20s. He made his first epic western, The Iron Horse, in 1924, and then followed that up with Three Bad Men in 1926, another big western. But he had not made a western uh, in the sound era. So since mm-hmm. 1926, he's not made a western. His, his career in the 30s, I could say, you could say, is very eclectic. He makes a mm-hmm. lot of diverse pictures. The Lost Patrol, Mary of Scotland, uh, mm-hmm. Pilgrimage, which is a really strong movie. He wins his first Oscar in 1935 for The Informer, which is about an Irish informant mm-hmm. during the uh, Troubles. But he had not addressed the Western. So even though he had won the Oscar in 1935 and was really one of the higher paid directors in Hollywood, he was not really considered commercially reliable. If I can interrupt, yes. talking about uh, him being the highest one of the highest paid directors, I found that he made over $100,000 per year every year from 1934 to 1941, including earning more than 200000 in 1938, which was more than double the salary of the U.S. president at the time, Wow! but still less than half the income of Carol Lombard, who is the highest paid star of the 30s. Wow. So he was doing pretty well. <laughs> he was, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe only Frank Capra did better. Oh, wow, yeah. I think he had... He, he, he had Carol all, Lombard yeah. money? Yeah. <laughs> So, but Ford, even though he is, you know, wildly successful uh, in his career, he's not really considered a commercially viable mm. director entirely, mm-hmm. you know. So in 1937, he comes across this short story staged to Lordsburg in Collier's Magazine. He buys it out of his own pocket for uh, $7,500. And he and his producing partner, Marion C. Cooper, decide they want to make it into a film. And Ford, through some sort of companies buying out other deals, had, a, had an arrangement with Daryl, uh, excuse me, David Oselznick. And they approached uh, Selznick to produce the movie. They pitch it to him, and Dudley Nichols is writing the script, who had worked with Ford many times before. Selznick is a hard sell, but finally he agrees to make the movie. Mm-hmm. They're happy they go away. The next morning, Selznick wakes up, changes his mind, calls them up, and says, we're not going to do it now. He just considers it another Western. He doesn't think it'll make back its costs. And also I should mention that Originally, Ford envisioned this as a giant color western. Mm. Selznick says, you know, I can get you Gary Cooper and Marlena Dietrich for the leads, and maybe we could make it Mm -hmm. if we do that. But Ford already had made up his mind who were playing the two leads. Mm -hmm. 
One was Claire Trevor mm-hmm. to play Dallas, who was hot off of the film Dead End mm-hmm. um, in 1937. And the other was John Wayne, mm-hmm. who had been spending his last the last decade making these terrible B-movie yep. westerns because he was the star of The Big Trail, which flopped and killed his career before it ever got yeah. started. I think Stagecoach, while it's what made John Wayne a star... I think it was his 80th film. Yeah, he in his yeah. career. Yeah, just churning out these terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, they're not all terrible, but right. just low budget, quickie westerns, run of the mill, yeah. of the mill kid aimed at children. Now to go back a little bit, yeah. Ford and Wayne knew each other from the 20s. Wayne had started working on the Fox lot where Ford was under contract, uh, doing props and stuff while he was going to school at USC, mm-hmm. and they became friends. Ford would put him in bit parts in some of his early pictures. He, I think he had an eye on what John Wayne could be from the very beginning. They were making a film called uh, Men Without Women in 1929. There was a dangerous stunt where divers had to jump in the water and rescue uh, sailors from a, a sinking submarine. The professional divers did not want to do the stunt. They balked at it. But John Wayne, who was doing props on the movie, decided he would do it, and he just jumped in and did it. <laughs> <laughs> and this really impressed Ford and, and caught his attention. And he said at the time... There was always something special about Duke, even then. Sure, he was callow and untutored, but he had something that jumped right off the screen at me. I guess you could call it star power. So he, I think, had in mind that John Wayne could be a star. Yeah. But before he had a chance to do anything about it, Raoul Walsh cast John Wayne in The Big Trail. Mm-hmm. And that's Wayne's first leading role in 1930. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some dispute over whether... Ford recommended him to Walsh, or Walsh just ran into him on the lot and right. said, hey, I want to test you. There's really, we don't really know the, mm-hmm. the real story on this. But nevertheless, Marion Morrison becomes John Wayne, makes this movie, it tanks, he goes into uh, purgatory, basically. Yeah. This, this movie being The Big Trail. The Big Trail Just tanks, yes, sir. Yeah. And then he's stuck working at, he gets a contract at Republic and he's making, you know, low budget westerns there. Yeah, I mean, I think the the hit of John Wayne was a surprise to everyone, except for Ford, the fellow cast member of this movie, Louise Platt, uh, who played the character of Lucy mm. uh, in this movie, recounted that Ford said of Wayne at the time, he'll be the biggest star ever because he is the perfect everyman. Right. Even though now he's a legend sort of beyond our right. imagining. <laughs> and so it's kind of weird he's... to think about him being an everyman. When he becomes like so much larger than life yeah. and the embodiment of the American right. ideal in a way right. for a long time. After The Big Trail came out, Ford kind of gave Wayne the cold shoulder. They had been buddies and used to go out on the yacht and stuff, but he kind of uh, sent him off uh, into the cold for a little uh-huh. while. And Ford Ford and Wayne had a complicated relationship, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, Ford could be very temperamental. He could be a jerk. Mm-hmm. He could be abusive. He was hard to get along with. Um, we'll get into more of yeah. that later, I'm sure. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyways, a few years go by, and he welcomes John Wayne back into the fold, taking him on the yacht. He invites him out one weekend, and Wayne thinks it's going to be the usual crew going out mm-hmm. on Ford's yacht uh, sailing, and it's just the two of them. And he hands him a script for Stagecoach, and he says, Duke, you know all these young actors around town. I'm trying to find somebody to play the Ringo Kid. Read this, and let me know who you think could do it. So Wayne... Uh, reads the script. They, they're on. You know, they're fishing all weekend. Ford's just needling him the whole time, just leading him, stringing him along. Wayne recommends Lloyd Nolan at mm-hmm. one point, which uh, you know is the odd casting. But Wayne later would claim that he knew Ford had wanted him for the part and uh-huh. was just giving him a, a sure. decoy. You know. Sure. So, anyways, after the you know the end of the weekend, Ford finally goes. 
this is for you. Don't you think you could play it, you <laughs> idiot? You know, something to that effect. I, I have a quote. Uh, Jesus Christ, I just wish to hell I could find some y- young actor in this town who could ride a horse and act. And then the next day... Uh, Ford said, I made up my mind. I want you to play the Ringo Kid. <laughs> Ford uh, calls in Claire Trevor on the, on the Fox lot and says he wants her to do a test with this young actor. And she's like, sure, great. You know, I'll come in. Ford told her, he said, the backers don't want him. The producers don't want him. I want him. John Wayne. <laughs> so they pitch it to Selznick. And again, he does not want it. Yeah. They pitch it to a few other studios. Yeah, they've tried. They yeah. balk. Yes. I, I have it that uh, 20th, 20th Century Fox's uh, Daryl F. Zanuck wouldn't even read the script. Right. Yeah, Ford's boss, because Ford was under right. contract, yeah, wouldn't yeah. even bother. It's crazy. They... One of your big directors brings you a script, and you don't even read it. <laughs> don't even have the courtesy Don't even read have it. your assistant read it. Come on. <laughs> and yet, they'd all be making westerns in the next right. uh, decade. Selznick uh, sent a memo to one of his uh, staff members saying, um, we must select the story and sell it to John Ford instead of having Ford select some uncommercial pet of his that we would be making only because of Ford's enthusiasm. I see no justification for making any story just because it is liked by a man who I'm willing to concede is one of the greatest directors in the world, (laughs) but whose record commercially is far from good. Mm. That was Selznick. Yeah, that was Selznick in a memo he wrote. So wow. basically they couldn't come together. Selznick just washed his hands of it. And he, he said, you know, if he let Ford go from the contract saying, I don't want him here if he doesn't want to be here with us, mm. which I think is fortunate because as meddlesome as David Selznick is <laughs> in his career, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just look at the making of Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And as independent minded as Ford is, he hated producers. And one of the reasons he loved the location yeah, from this movie. Flee to the middle yes. of nowhere. <laughs> Because it was impossible for studio execs to get there. So you could be left alone. So I think it would have been a disaster had they worked together. Yeah. But luckily they did not. (laughs) Funnily enough, uh, Selznick does make a giant color western in 1946 called Duel in the Sun. Mm. That, you know, is trying to replicate the success of Gone with the Wind in the western. Mm -hmm. But Ford ends up taking the project to independent producer Walter Wanger, who is great, but they have to make it in black and white. And a lower budget. And he did not want Wayne and Claire Trevor either. And he also suggested Gary Cooper and Marlena Dietrich. Mm-hmm. But Ford was adamant. And, and he even suggested Joel McRae, uh, mm-hmm. Wanger. And then out of courtesy, Ford tested actor Bruce Cabot, who people would know from King Kong and later John Wayne movies like The Green Berets and Hatari. I read that Errol Flynn also turned down the role. Yeah, I'm not sure that... Uh, That's not... Well, I don't know that Ford would have offered it to Errol right. Flynn. Like maybe a Wanger... Yeah. suggested it and then Flynn would become a, a cowboy star sure. later too so Ford tested uh, Bruce Cabot who was a young actor many John Wayne films mm-hmm. he was the villain in uh, Angel and the Bad Man uh, and after the test Cabot said well how'd I do Pappy and Ford said he did fine but Duke's got the part mm. so I think it was just uh, a foregone yeah. conclusion he was my third assistant prop man then he became the second prop man he finally worked himself up to prop man and we started to do stagecoach, and uh, oh, everybody turned it down. I had to pedal it around, and finally Walter Wanger, you know, he says, "Well, you got a picture." He says, "You know, he says, what the Western scene?" He says, "Well, go ahead and do it." He says, "He says, who do you want to use for a lead?" I says, "I've got a kid here. He's uh, just out of college. I've used him in several bits, and he's very good. Big, tall, handsome guy." And I'd like to make a test of them, uh, test of them, uh, show it to you. He said, well, if you say it's okay, okay. And you know, I'll make the test. So I made a test of them. He says, 
Yeah, go ahead, great. So Walter went off to Europe and we made the picture with Duke and that sort of started him off. One of the benefits of John Wayne and the cast is that he came cheap. Yes. He was the lowest paid of the principal cast members getting $3,700. Claire Trevor, conversely, got somewhere from $15,000 to $20,000. I've mm. read uh, different figures, but quite I, a bit more. I read the entire budget for the cast was 65000 Okay. And it's a big cast. It's yeah. a sizable cast. Yeah. So. And Tim Holt, who plays the cavalry <laughs> uh, lieutenant early in the film, who has a you know not a very yeah. big part, got five thousand dollars. Right, so. but he's a wanger guy. Yeah, he was he's in his kind of stock. Yeah, stock exactly. company for. And uh, Louise Platt was as well a wanger mm-hmm. uh, cast member. But Trevor is also she. He, she's coming off a she, Oscar yeah she had an Oscar nomination so yeah it was in a big hit movie yeah. so she yeah she definitely could command that whereas Wayne had nothing to right. back him up. Just failures, yes. essentially. <laughs> but I think the other thing that appealed to Wanger was he was a little more liberal-minded and liked kind of these message films. Yes. And, and definitely, I think, Stagecoach speaks to that as far as class struggles, moral decisions, a lot of that. It's much more um, in your face about its message than mm-hmm. I think a later John Ford would be. Really? Yeah, I think he's he gets uh, a little more subtle as he goes on. I think I would disagree. You do? Yeah, I feel like that's just a... a through line throughout his whole career. He always well, he always addresses class and, I feel like and social all, injustice. You think it's always at right the up forefront. there? Yeah. Okay. All right. I just thought it was a little more on the nose here, but maybe not. Hmm. I would say maybe the characters are a little simpler in this, so yeah, it makes that's it true. seem more whereas maybe in later films the characters are a little more nuanced and and their interaction with that the moral, the lesson, the whatever you right. call it. Um, that's fair. Pulls yeah. it back a little yeah. bit, maybe. Yeah, I can see that. But I feel like it's the same sort of attitudes that Ford is bringing to every production. Yes. You're far more far more <laughs> versed in Ford than I am, but... <laughs> but he is always dealing with society yeah. and, and class and all those Whether things. it's in the context of the West or war right. or Britain, you know, what have you. Yes, it's always uh, part of the story, mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas someone with like Howard Hawks... His westerns really don't deal with that sort of thing at all. Everyone's just, you know, it's an equal society and it's, you know, completely merit-based. So just while we're on the topic here of of the development of the film, I wanted to talk a little bit about Wanger, who was a a character I didn't really know about, but as I started looking into, I kind of realized he had an interesting past. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm I'm not really, no. Just to kind of frame it, I wanted to go back to this, um, the movie booklet for Stagecoach, Mm -hmm. which shocked me how much it framed stagecoach as wanger's baby like very little mention of ford interesting when it's when stagecoach is really men- often mentioned as like the example of an auteur film right of like ford was involved from he bought the 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 story, story. He's involved in the casting, you know, intimately. He developed the script with Dudley Nichols. <laughs> kind of at every inch, he's involved. But in this uh, movie booklet, I just want to read another very grandiose bit <laughs> of its language. Our country is great. Our pride in what it stands for is real. Our gratitude for what it has given us is unquestioned. If we stop to take inventory of the assets that have given us our balance sheet of dignity, freedom, and the respect of the world, we would be bound to highlight a thousand events in a glorious history. To compress it all into a single screenplay would be an impossibility. Bearing this in mind, but without ever forgetting the whole pattern, Walter Wanger produced Stagecoach. <laughs> it is a single incident in the Western progress of a people, yet it is a symbol 
of our whole development. I mean, this makes it sound like Wanger invented America right. or something. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, it, so throughout, it credits him with a lot of this development of it. It's, it gives him credit for basically casting the actors to, to quote-unquote visualize the characters in the story. And to give credit to Wanger, he wrote a letter to United Artists, uh, I guess, marketing department, saying that the booklet is interesting and attractive. It fails, however, to indicate the full measure of credit that is due John Ford for his part in the making of the picture. I read the Haycock story, but after Ford had purchased it and brought it to me. Again, it was Ford who worked with Dudley Nichols in creating the fine script. And John Wayne as the Ringo Kid was also Ford's idea. While I am proud to be the producer of Stagecoach, will you please do everything in your power to see that the picture is known as John Ford's achievement? Yeah. That's credit to Wanger. Yeah. I had seen that memo. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't realized what uh, he was what referring it was in to exactly. To. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it feels like such a propaganda machine for Wanger's career. Right, right. So I just assumed that he was behind it, that he was telling this marketing department to, like, just put him right. <laughs> forward and take all the credit. As so many producers would. Exactly. That's what I'm like used David to. Like David O'Sullivan. Right. Yeah. So Wanger was a, a pretty prolific independent producer, mm -hmm. as we've kind of mentioned. Uh, his career ended with the troubled 1963 production of Cleopatra. Oh, yeah, I didn't know he was involved in that. I mean, it, it <laughs> ruined him, yeah. But before that, uh, in 1951, he faced scandal when he shot and wounded the agent of his then-wife actress Joan Bennett when he suspected they were having an affair. That's right, that's right. And, and Joan denied any, any romance happening, and she issued a statement in which she hoped her husband would not be blamed too much, <laughs> despite seriously wounding <laughs> this poor man. He and Wanger ended up serving a four-month sentence and even received a credit on the film Kansas Pacific while he was in jail. Wow. Producing credit. And he remained married to Bennett until 1965. Wow. Meanwhile, Bennett basically got uh, blacklisted. Because that makes sense. <laughs> For not admitting to having an affair. Right, right. But and, it's okay to shoot somebody. Yeah. Oh, his career thrived for the next decade. Meanwhile, she only appeared in seven further features. And she even claimed once, I might as well have pulled the trigger myself. Uh, and, and said, it would never happen that way today. If it happened today, I'd be a sensation. I'd be wanted by all studios for all pictures. Yeah. A woman can't do that back right. then. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. Meanwhile, his prison stint would inspire him to make the film Riot and Cell Block 11. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. Yeah. The Don Siegel movie. A little reminiscence yeah. <laughs> of good times. And separately, uh, David Niven recalled in his autobiography an incident when Wanger stalked Errol Flynn and threatened to kill him, believing he was having an affair with wow. David Bennett. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so don't mess, mess with Wanger is what we're trying to say here. He's serious, this yeah. guy. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, getting back to his career, mm -hmm. um, I think that was one of the... the he had a very hands-off approach with directors, which mm. I think made him an excellent partner for Ford. Oh, yeah. yeah. He'd be all over that. <laughs> yes. So they're about to roll into production mm -hmm. in 1938 for this movie. The screenplay by Ford and, and Dudley Nichols. Mm -hmm. There were some differences from the story uh, in the screenplay. Um, all the character names are changed. Mm -hmm. I read the story before. Oh, you uh, did? I have not read the story. Yeah. It's... It's very short. I wouldn't say it's even an outline for this film. I really? mean, it's pretty bare bones, but it, but it definitely captures the same spirit, I would mm. say. Okay. Like the revenge story is added on by Ford. 
There's there's a sort of revenge there story. Is. Yeah, okay. the, they they draw it out more. And uh, Lucy is not pregnant or even married in the film. I don't. I mean, in the short story, I believe they is call her right? the army girl. Mm. I think, uh, but no, she's not pregnant. And the John Wayne character, that's totally changed. He's not like an outlaw. Right. He's not escaped from prison. Right. Yeah. So so you got a lot of differences, but they yeah they really filled it out for the film. Um, the author of the of the short story is Ernest Haycox, uh, who was a, a popular pulp western writer mm-hmm. of the time. He wrote two dozen novels, um, over three hundred short stories. Uh, he's sort of an interesting figure to compare with Ford in that he also sort of helped transform the western, but in literature from the B pulp story to mm-hmm. a more literate, you know, long form western. Hemingway once said, I read the Saturday Evening Post whenever it has a serial by Ernest Haycox. Wow, that's an endorsement. <laughs> it really is. Uh, his novel Troubleshooter would be adapted for another uh, 1939 C.B. DeMille Western Union Pacific starring Barbara Stanwyck and Joel McRae. And some of his other stories would also inspire uh, Canyon Passage and Man in the Saddle. Mm-hmm. Haycox, meanwhile, did not read his contemporary Western writers because he thought it would like interfere with his style. Right, And so a lot of... His style is more based on like crime novels of the time, and I, I can see that in this story. It's very quick, short sentences, like to the point, in that sort of crime novel way that you right, have. You know, right, right. Which just down and dirty, I guess. Yeah. Haycox's background was also kind of interesting. He grew up in the Pacific Northwest had kind of a real curiosity about life and lied about his age and entered the Oregon National Guard where he was deployed to the California-Mexico border to write about Pancho Villa. Oh. Pancho didn't show up. <laughs> um, but he would write about that before serving in World War One in France. Uh, he then worked as a commercial fisherman in Alaska before entering college. Uh, and upon graduation, he was briefly a police reporter. Oh. So he's got all these very interesting careers going right. on that all sort of lead him to be a Western writer. There's just an, another line from the short story that I, I liked that sort of encapsulates the the story as well. They were all strangers packed closely together with nothing in common save a destination. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, That sums up the movie yeah. pretty much. Yeah. And it sort of feels also like this like metaphor towards like, we're all headed towards the same destination, right, if right. you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on this revolving earth that we're on. Yes. Well, Lordsburg, I mean... Oh, yeah. I hadn't even realized yeah. that. <laughs> I just thought Lordsburg was a real place and didn't, it is, get, yeah. well, and did, and didn't get beyond that, I guess. <laughs> Another inspiration for Stagecoach, which has been often cited, is the Guy de Maupassant story, <laughs> Boule de Suif, which is uh, about a diverse group of passengers and a stagecoach. You're starting to get the, the gist, <laughs> um, but set during the Franco-Prussian War. Right. It also sort of somewhat inspired Shanghai Express from 1932. And uh, the main character is a prostitute in the in that right. story. Yeah. Dudley Nichols, the, the screenwriter that worked with Ford to adapt the screenplay, uh, for his own part, was another um, a New York reporter, New York Post reporter, before he became... Uh, a screenwriter. He would write or co-write scripts for Bringing Up Baby, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Scarlet Street, The Bells of St. Mary's, Pinky, the Anthony Mann Western and the Tin Star, uh, and would win the Oscar in 1935 for the the Ford film, The Informer, which you mentioned. However, for that one, he was the first person to ever turn down an Oscar. 
Uh, in this case, it was because of a dispute between the Academy and the Screenwriters Guild, of which he was a founder right. uh, and president at the time. Nichols would ultimately work on 13 scripts for Ford mm-hmm. and, and would direct some too, including uh, writing and directing the adaptation of Morning Becomes Electra in 1947. One of the most notorious financial flops for RKO at the time, losing the studio a record $2.3 million. (laughs) They probably didn't need that then. No. A a great tradition of writers becoming failed directors. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another endorsement of Ford as being the auteur of this film, uh, Nichols said, if ever there was a picture that was a director's picture, it was this one. Well, for the writer to say that. Yeah, that's that's something. Yeah. You don't hear that a lot. No. <laughs> because separately, he had this quote, which I loved <laughs> that I just wanted to share with you. It is the writer who is the dreamer, the imaginer, the shaper. He works in loneliness with nebulous materials, with nothing more tangible than paper and a pot of ink. And his theater is within his mind. <laughs> He must generate phantoms out of himself and live with them until they take on a life of their own and become, not types, but characters working out their own destinies. <laughs> that sounds like something a writer would yeah. say. Yeah. My sense is he thinks a little yeah. highly of He's himself. He's a little bit, yeah. So for him to be so humble and congratulate and to, Ford, yeah, that's something, something to me. They must have gotten along well. Yeah, yeah for, them, for them to work together so much and for... Ford to have such a spiky personality. Yeah, yeah, to be so difficult. But, I mean, Ford has a lot of frequent collaborators. That's true. I mean, uh, John Wayne, for one. Exactly. (laughs) Who said terrible things to him. Yes, yes. Who has abused him horribly over the years, yeah. One of the the things I failed to mention at the the outset Mm. was uh, another important part of this movie was the introduction of Monument Valley to moviegoers around the world. I think we've mentioned Monument Valley on this podcast before. Yes. This would be it would become Ford's favorite location. He would return many times and he would return even when he wasn't making a movie. It was an important <laughs> place to him. Yeah. The person who introduced Monument Valley to Ford was Harry Goulding, who owned Goulding's Lodge in Monument Valley. Uh, which was a Navajo reservation, Indian lands. Harry and his wife, Mike, had moved out there in the early 20s, fell in love with the place. They fell in love with the Navajo. They traded with them. Became part of the community. Mm-hmm. Harry learned their language. But during the Depression, a drought hit. So they, they really were on hard times. The Navajo, the Mike, or Harry and Mike. And they heard about a Western being made. <laughs> so his wife, Mike, her brother lived in L.A. So they drove out there and stayed with him. Harry went to uh, Walter Wanger's office, brought his bedroll with him. Asked the receptionist to see him, which, of course, she said, no, get out of here, you crazy person. So he just unfurled his bedroll and and camped out in the office. Who's this homeless man in my office? (laughs) Uh, Finally, she calls the location manager. Mm -hmm. He comes out, and Harry has photos of Monument Valley. Mm -hmm. He shows them to the location manager, and he's impressed Mm -hmm. and he's so he calls ford Mm. ford comes over to the office (laughs) sees the pictures and says okay this is where we're shooting wow yeah now monument valley had been in the movies before in a 1925 film called the vanishing american and there is some dispute as to how ford found out about it he would later say that george o'brien an actor he worked with a number of times told him about it and he knew about it beforehand john wayne would even take credit for for introducing Mm. it to ford but the accepted story is that Harry Golding brought it to Ford's attention. Yeah, that's the one I've always heard. Yeah. So now they've got this epic location that is just going to blow moviegoers away when mm-hmm. it's, it hits the big screen. And so, it does. Yes. <laughs> it always does. It always does. So they start production in uh, October of 1938. 
and they're going to shoot until just before Christmas of that same year. The crew was housed in an old CCC camp in northern Arizona, where conditions were rough, (laughs) and production hours were long, Right, and the weather wasn't great. Um, The still photographer wrote of production, I've been so goddamn tired, and I've been so cold and busy that I've hardly had energy to write. They're crazy, this outfit. Up at 5 a.m. and back at 6 p.m. Dust galore. Wind. Rain. Snow. And more (laughs) wind. I'm fed up and want to get back home. My bed is hard and lonely. 20 in one room. Snoring galore. (laughs) Yeah, it must have been rough. I mean, it's... Winter there. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that happened was it snowed uh overnight while they were shooting mm. and so the crew got up and they're like oh we're gonna have today off because we Snow can't day. shoot yeah but ford is like no lo- he loved it sure. it was great so they went out and shot stuff and then just recorded a, a rewrote a new line for andy divine later back in the mm. studio to cover the snow mm-hmm. uh, which is really clever i think ford is like known for taking accidents and making them yeah. improve his films and it's add a, a great something. director is being able being adaptable and exactly. using new things to your advantage right and yeah. getting getting back to your photographer i mean I think it's so remote there now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to get oh, there yeah. now. I can't imagine what it was like mm-hmm. in the late 30s. Like, there no no paved roads, no, you know, nothing. It's And you've been there in summer and winter. Yes, yeah. Was it freezing? It was cold, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's even cold, <laughs> I think, and windy when we, we went in the summer. In the, yeah, yeah. Like, in the in the evenings and... Yeah, it was cold, yeah. It's so, I can't imagine, you know, like... When it's really cold, there. right? Yeah, and they only actually shot for one week in Monument Valley. Yeah, the rest was locations elsewhere, right. and and they shot all over Arizona and California. Yeah, right? there's actually a lot of rear screen projection in this movie for when they're in the coach mm-hmm. and traveling, and I think that's something that you would not see as much in later Ford films. Hmm. There'd be much more location photography. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but bigger I, budgets, I'm sure. Yeah, but I just think the nature maybe of the the story of right. them all in the coach required. Yeah. Um, a lot of rear screen. It's interesting talking about Ford using accidents to his advantage mm-hmm. when he had a shaman on call right. <laughs> to make sure the clouds were yes. right. So he was a little persnickety about some things. And supposedly it worked. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it looks great. It does. I mean, Ford always got the great uh, clouds and weather there. Mm-hmm. And John Wayne was the only principal at every location, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so. <laughs> right, yeah. So Tim Holt was also in Monument Valley mm-hmm. as because he was with the cavalry troop. But uh, like you said, he's not in it that much. No, no. So yeah. that's his his one little foray. Right. Yeah. But it's just funny to think like that movie's this movie's so known for Monument Valley, right. but it's really a small part of it. Yeah. You know. Or it's a lot of extras. And... Yes. Yeah. Doubles and yeah. yeah. During production, Ford, uh, his direction of John Wayne <laughs> was abusive to say the least. <laughs> he. Constantly berated him. He called mm-hmm. him a dumb bastard, mm-hmm. a big oaf. He yelled at him for holding his mouth weird. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you don't act with your mouth. You act with your eyes. There was one scene he got, became so exasperated with Wayne's performance. He just told him, just raise your eyebrows and wrinkle your forehead. <laughs> Which he does. And that became sort of a John Wayne yeah. signature acting move. Yeah. I, think. I mean, he does that. And I mean, the cowboy's not known for talking, so you have to convey a lot with your expressions. Right. (laughs) He was so abusive to him that other cast members would come to his defense. Tim Holt yelled at Ford to leave him alone. One day, Ford invited Wayne to watch dailies. Mm -hmm. And he asked him, you know, what do you think? What's your opinion? And and Wayne was like, oh, it looks great. Everything's going well. Mm -hmm. And Ford asked him what he thought of his own performance. He's like, oh, it's, you know, it's okay. And 
Ford just kept pressing him. Was like, anything? <laughs> isn't there anything wrong? Is there anything? And finally said, well, he had a minor criticism about how Andy Devine was holding the reins on the stagecoach. Like, they needed to be a little tighter. Uh-huh. Ford said, hold it, hold it. He called the entire cast and crew over. And he goes, Mr. Wayne thinks his performance is great, but he has some criticism about oh the gosh. other actors. In front of everyone. Oh, my gosh. It's just terrible. Yeah. But I've heard that, that Wayne said this is all purposeful to get the rest of the cast on Wayne's side. Yes, yes. That it's all part of like the director's game. And it's he, I think he also did it, did it to keep Wayne off not thinking about what, mo- yeah. what he was doing. And the fact that he's in this movie with Thomas Mitchell, who's a big actor, right. and, and all these other skilled actors. Right. And this was his first big chance with these skilled actors. He's right. been in... in things where he was the biggest star up until then uh and wayne even said he said first of all he was making me feel emotions he knew he wouldn't get a good job of work out of me unless he shook me up so damn hard i'd forget to worry about whether i was fit to be in the same picture with thomas mitchell mr ford only wanted to do one thing and that was to make good pictures and to do this he would do anything anything i love Uh, that he calls him mr ford i know (laughs) Wayne would also say that Ford would uh, would treat him awful about minor things, really, like the way he walked or held mm-hmm. his face. And he said, but when I had a scene to do, Wayne said, he treated me like a baby, which is really his style. Mm. But he'd do anything to get a performance. Mm. The second day on the picture, they, there's uh, quite a big scene going on in which I have one line toward the end of the scene. And in the meantime, to keep me busy in the background, he has me uh, washing my face and drying it. And he'd say, cut. All right. He'd look over at me and say, let's do it again. And I, you know, now I become conscious that he's uh, certainly paying a lot of attention to me with that scene going on over there. So finally I did. And he says, cut. Duke, you're dabbing your face. Can't you wash? And I said, I am washing. I'm doing this. What, what more can I do? I'm using the towel hard like that. What more can I? Finally, all the crew, all the uh, actors, the cast was completely on my side. From then on, I had the cast helping me, you know, as my first time in the, really in the big time, working with so many top people. You think he planned it uh, that way? I know he planned it that way. He has a way of picking on actors when they're um, not too important a part of a scene in order to get them on the toes so they'll come in ready when they really have something to do. And then he handles you like a baby. This relationship would continue throughout yeah. their career together. I mean, they would work together until 1963. Yeah. Uh, that would make them make their last film together. And when they're would, both old men. Yeah, they're both old men. And really, at that point, Ford sometimes needed Wayne to get pictures made. Yeah. You know, because right. Wayne was the biggest star in the world. Sure. But he would still treat him terribly. He would just take it. He always felt indebted to Ford. They had like a, you know, a father-son, mentor-student yeah. relationship. But we should say that the, that... Tr- mean treatment wasn't limited to Wayne. The rest of the cast got it. (laughs) At one point, Ford said to Andy Devine, you big tub of lard, I don't know why the hell I'm using you in this picture. (laughs) To which Devine replied, because Ward Bond can't drive six horses. But to which I say, if it's all rear screen projection, why do you need them to drive horses? Well, Andy does drive the horse. When they cross the river, he's he's driving the horses across the river. Oh. Yeah. He's he's on he's up there driving the horses. Okay. And Ford also attacked Thomas Mitchell, who you just said was was a great actor right. at the time. And finally, Mitchell just retorted, "Just remember, I saw Mary of Scotland." <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is not a great Ford picture. <laughs> 
Although um, I read that possibly Ford wanted Catherine Hepburn to play Dallas. I had read that too. Um, and they had had an affair mm-hmm. around around that time. Spicy. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Who wears the pants in that relationship? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but back to the Ford and Wayne relationship. Yeah. Michael Wayne, uh, John Wayne's son, had said he often asked uh, asked for and took Mr. Ford's advice on things, uh, both with respect to his personal life and also his career. And whenever Ford wanted him, all he had to do was crook his finger, and my father came running. They weren't aligned politically at all. Ford was a big Democrat, and of course, mm-hmm. my father campaigned for Richard Nixon, so they had their differences. But whatever Ford wanted, Wayne was there for him. Yeah. I think he was always grateful of what this picture mm-hmm. did for him. She has loyalty, if nothing right. else. <laughs> Getting into more of Ford's directing style and, and, and how he interacts with the cast, um, Louise Platt, who again I mentioned plays Lucy in the film, mm-hmm. said that Ford told her in her first scene, I don't want a Virginia accent. I don't want any charm. This gal is cold as a rock. Because yeah. so, I guess she was playing her with this cutesy southern accent right. or whatever. <clears throat> and, and she said, it says in the script, she's a Virginian with a musical accent. Charming and polite. Or perhaps Dudley said that. To which Ford, Ford responded, that's Dudley's direction, not mine. I think a movie <laughs> is for the eye. Dudley thinks it's for the ear. His next film will no doubt be three hours long. I like a minimum of dialogue. Dudley loves verbiage. <laughs> but you see that through, yeah. throughout yeah. his films of making things efficient. Yes. And getting things across visually. Telling the story with just the camera set up in the most efficient way. Right. Yeah. I mean, just like the beginning of the film, you so quickly find out about the threat of Geronimo. Right. Through a telegraph message, and then it cuts straight into meeting the characters, and... I feel like a lesser film would just spend ages setting right. that up. Well, he handles that so well, yeah. like introducing all the characters, what's their backstory, what's going on with them, and boom, they're on the stagecoach right. in, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes or something. It's. I mean, like I said, the characters are a little bit simpler. They are caricatures. Yes, yes. But that's still difficult to get across. I mean, that still comes down to all of these elements of directing of... How they're costumed, how their attitude is. Yes. I mean, like, like this with with Lucy. You know, she's cold. She doesn't have this charming Southern accent. Right. Those are all directing decisions that Ford has decided to make. Right. As so much of Ford is the actors' gesturing and looks and reaction yes. shots, and like I just thinking about John Carradine's introduction when he's playing cards and he sees uh lucy mallory for the first time and he's overhearing and he knows who she is and he's the way he looks and 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 there's a whole subtext there that i don't think is ever explained in any way it's all looks right he obviously has some sort of relationship with her father i mean Mm -hmm. he was in her father's regiment but does he know her does he get in love with her it's have they had a an affair in the past yeah because she seems very intrigued with him as well right you know back to like Ford and Wayne, his handling of John Wayne in this movie, there's so many times he goes to shots of John Wayne re- just reacting mm-hmm. to things. Like, he's such a focus of this. Like, it's just people are, they're having their conversations yeah. and we see what Wayne is thinking or what, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's, he's really, you know, building him, turning him yeah. into a star. That is a change I would say between the short story and the film is, I would say in the short story, the, the equivalent character of Dallas is by far the protagonist, mm-hmm. is who we're seeing the story through. And while she's a major figure in this film, maybe, right. the, maybe the secondary protagonist, yeah. it's Wayne who, who's really our star here yeah. and who leads us through. And I mean, even though he gets introduced later, 
it's a spectacular introduction. Yes. <laughs> um, and we end with him. And it, right. And it's, it, it is his and story. It, it is. It ends with his story. Yeah. yeah. And as much as I hate to see uh, a, a female story taken away from her, Ford does such a great job with Wayne in this film and with that right. character. And we should talk about that introduction. Yeah. They're all on the coach. They're riding. You hear the shot and mm-hmm. he yells, hold it. And that camera just dollies in Mm -hmm. to his face, just Mm -hmm. pushes in. Like Ford never does big camera moves like that. Right. And it's clear that he is making a star. You know, he he knows what he's doing. It's the moment that made him. Yeah. 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 It's such a a amazing shot. It even goes out of focus for a second and. if, if you don't even want to watch the movie, just find yeah. that shot, find that gif, whatever, and you'll see what we're talking it's about. It's like, here's here's the movie yeah. star, right? Yeah, it's an amazing... It's uh, this, like, attractive young man that's representing America, doing a flourish. <laughs> right. He's got As that, he shouts. Yes. <laughs> and he's swinging the Winchester. And he's inviting you in, right. <laughs> calling you in. He's got that big, the big loop mm-hmm. on the rifle, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's something. Just yes. as a as a side note, I think John Wayne made an impression on uh, Louise Platt, I and mean, we we have a lot of her quotes because she's the longest living actor ah. of the cast, <clears throat> so she was able to comment on it later in life. But apparently, she was watching John Wayne one day and turned to Claire Trevor and said, "I think he has the most beautiful buttocks I've ever <laughs> seen." <laughs> I don't know if you've uh, ever thought that much about John Wayne's buttocks. That much about his buttocks, but next time I'll yeah, I'll pay in a pair attention. of dungarees. <laughs> but he is like he's what uh, early thirties here, mm-hmm. um, and he is like you know just like he's in a, his prime. He's an Adonis. He's like yeah. six four, and he's a good looking right. guy, and and, uh, and and I think people think of John Wayne so much of his later years when he's heavier, right? And, you know the you know the late period John Wayne, yeah. but he was you know. Yeah. A striking young man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to the characters on this. A lot of people have claimed that this movie created all the Western stereotype yeah. characters. I don't know if that's true necessarily. I think maybe they already existed. Yeah. And but what Ford does with them is he he tweaks them in ways and and mm-hmm. the way he portrays them is it makes them more interesting and and different and just using the ease of these cliches. Right. Right. We get to know them very quickly, yes, like we said. Yes, And the characters, we have John Carradine playing uh, Hatfield, who's a notorious gambler, gunman. I love his outfit, by the yeah. way. It's so, <laughs> like, quintessentially gambler, He's like kind a, of sleazeball. Yeah, he's sort of like a Doc Holliday type. Kind of, kind of foppish or something. Yeah, it's very, it's very much a dandy yeah, in a way. Dandy, like, it's very, yeah. and very meticulous about his appearance and the groomed mustache mm-hmm. and the little uh, thing under his chin. And yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know I'd like to see a movie just about him. I'd like to yeah. see a prequel with John Carradine yeah. and what, what his deal was. Um, you have Louise Platt as Lucy Mallory, who is married to a cavalry officer, and she's on the journey to reunite with her husband, who she keeps missing at all mm-hmm. the stage depots. Uh, and she's pregnant, although we aren't really told that until much later in the movie, but just due, due to the time, right. you weren't allowed to show that she was pregnant or say that she was yeah. pregnant. Until... I think the censors got to the script before anything yeah. was even shot. And Yeah, they had to downplay some, uh, some of the prostitute angle on right. Dallas, played by Claire Trevor, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, coming off of uh, The Dead End. Mm-hmm. John Wayne is the Ringo kid, escaped from prison. He went into jail at, what, 16 or 17, yeah. and he's out to get the plumber boys. That's his mission, mm-hmm. who, who murdered his father and brother. You have the crooked banker, um, Burton Churchill, playing uh, Mr. Gatewood. That character, I think, is the only one 
that is completely unredeemed in any way. Yeah. Like he has no nuance to right. him. He's just awful. And it makes sense. You're in the Great Depression. Yeah. He's a rich banker running off with money. No one likes bankers at this time of the Yeah. Day. Relatable now. Yes. <laughs> and that's a character too that was invented in the film. It's, oh, okay. There's a, a different character in the story. I forget what it is. But. Yeah. But he's, I guess the only thing you could feel sorry for him is his wife seems pretty awful too. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a stretch. You have uh, uh, Mr. Peacock. Is that his name? Is it Haycock? Haycock. I'm not confused. Haycock. It's a running joke that they don't know, know his name. My name is Peacock. Uh, so Donald Meek plays uh, the whiskey drummer, mm-hmm. who's a very mild-mannered, uh, quiet, and he gets pushed around uh, <laughs> by everybody yeah. up until a certain point, I would say. Yeah. Uh, once the baby is born, he kind of starts asserting himself, and he mentions he's a family man throughout the He's like, the I have experience yeah. in this. And he, he like, starts yeah. speaking up at that point. You have um, Oscar winner Thomas Mitchell mm-hmm. as Doc Boone, the drunken doctor, who a lot of people have said is sort of Ford's mouthpiece, mm. his stand-in in the mm. movie, if you will. Um, he especially pushes around uh, yes. Donald Meek because he wants that whiskey. <laughs> he is a drunk yeah, <laughs> and wants that whiskey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I like it. You mentioned uh, when he's drinking the sample and hiding his oh, yeah. his hand. Like, he it? holds up his hand while he's taking a sip in this tiny little stagecoach as if no one around him will be able to see. <laughs> There's so many little comedic moments like that that aren't maybe aren't even scripted that Yeah, I wonder that sort that, of fill out the whole piece. That, yeah. Yeah. That make all these characters really funny Particularly and interesting. Mitchell. I mean Yes. A drunk is often very funny. Right. He gets a lot to do. Yeah. We have um Andy Devine as uh, Buck, the stagecoach driver. He's kind of a buffoonish character. Um also very funny. Also very funny. Yeah. He's great in it. I'm glad Ward Bond didn't get the part. Yeah. I mean I like I think Ward Bond's a great actor, but he brings something else yeah, to the table. He, I'm trying to imagine Ward Bond watching it the last time. And, well this character is like pushed around a lot. Yeah. Like yeah. he never gets a word in edgewise. Right. And then I can't see Ward Bond I, getting pushed around. I mean no. he's often playing like a sergeant or something right. in, in later films. Right. He's calling the shots. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, him being as successful in the role as, yeah. as uh and then George Bancroft as Curly the Marshal who uh, decides to ride shotgun because he heard Ringo busted out yeah. and wants to try and get, you know, catch him before the... He seems more worried that Ringo's going to get killed by the plumbers, and that's his reason for going after him, yeah. I, you know. Yeah, it's sort of... Ambiguous. Ambiguous who's who he's really supporting. Yeah, and then the, we have Tim Holt, as we mentioned, who is um, the cavalry lieutenant who escorts them from Tonto to the first mm-hmm. uh, stagecoach depot. Yeah. And the movie itself is divided into pretty discrete sections. I yes. think there's there's eight episodes. We've got this little intro um, with the cavalry and the telegraph telling us that Geronimo is seen in the area. Right. That leads right into this sort of introduction of all the characters, who they are, where they are sort of class-wise. Right. What their deal is, and that's in, in Tonto, this right. town. They get on the stagecoach, uh, headed to Lordsburg, and we get a little more of that trip. And then we, you know, we learn the, the you get the various levels of class on the, right. on the trip. Doc and Dallas are being run out of town. Uh, yeah. Other people are going for different reasons. The banker, because he stole the money. Uh, Mrs. Mallory, because she wants to find her husband, mm-hmm. and so forth. And and you see the attitudes of, of yes. these people. And having to be in the same coach with them is, like, distasteful for some of them. Particularly Lucy and the gambler are very judgmental right. of Dallas, the prostitute. Right. You see them not letting, not drinking out of the same vessels because that they might be tainted or something. <laughs> and 
right? There's a certain deference and chivalry presented towards Lucy yes. that is not extended to Dallas in mm-hmm. any way. She's mm-hmm. just an afterthought. Right. There's no need in even a reason to acknowledge her. Yeah. Their first stop after uh, the stagecoach is at the Dry Fork station where they stop for food and there's this big uh, dinner table scene right. where we get more of that sort of class distinction of who's allowed to sit next to Dallas and you see the John Wayne Ring- Ringo character uh, sort of reach out to her. Right. They move to the other end of the table. Uh, Lucy and, and uh, Carradine move to the other end of the table mm-hmm. and Wayne thinks, oh, it's because of me. I'm a prisoner. Yeah. I'm an outlaw. Right. Yeah. That he doesn't know that she's a prostitute necessarily. We don't. We're no, not no. sure. We're not sure. It's never made clear whether he knows right what what she is or not. Yeah, it's not clear whether he's he knows and he's just being nice to her and is being honorable. Right. In that he he's and just treating the woman her. like a woman. Yeah, yeah. not judging <laughs> her, or if he really is kind of that clueless. Right. Because and he, as you pointed out, he went into the pen when he's like sixteen right. or whatever. Which which Thomas Mitchell character asks him in a very pointed way. Of, right. When was it that you went into the pen? And he says, "Oh, I was almost 17. Doc just goes, "Got it." Right. Yeah. That I comes... know something you you don't know <laughs> that might affect you. Right. In your relationship with Dallas. Right. That scene comes right after Dallas has asked Doc. If she, if it's okay for her to marry Ringo or mm-hmm. to run off with Ringo, and uh, I think Doc's like putting things together. Yeah, there. and I mean, in this story, I would say it's also hinted at that the the equivalent Ringo kid character does not know about Dallas's prostitute ways, right? Because it says the army girl was in one world and she was in another. She being Dallas, uh-huh. as everyone in the coach understood. It had no effect on her, for this was a distinction she had learned long ago. Only the blonde man, that is, uh, the John Wayne character, broke through her indifference. His name was Malpace Bill, and she could see the wildness in the corner of his eyes and in the long crease of his lips. It was a stamp that would never come off, yet something flowed out of him toward her that was different than the predatory curiosity of the other men. Something unobtrusively gallant, unexpectedly gentle. And then later he asks her, You have folks in Lordsburg? She spoke in a direct, patient way, as though explaining something he should have known without asking. Hmm. I run a house in Lordsburg, she says. So that makes it seem like she's having to explain it to him. Right. But But, none of that's in the movie. No. Yeah. But I think the same attitude. Attitude is in the, yeah. But my problem with that, that we're believing that John Wayne is just clueless or maybe a little dumb. (laughs) Yeah. and, and, And for a long period of time doesn't realize that she's a prostitute is I think that makes his character less honorable. Like, it's just right. that he's a little bit slow. Right. <laughs> he just doesn't know who right. he is. But... I think I would respect the character more if he did know right. and wasn't judging her. I, my, I think my feeling is he does know. He has an idea that she's not... He knows she's not from an upper class. Upper class. I think based on how she's dressed, I yeah. think that's probably an indicator. Sure. And when he's escorting her to her place at the end... They're going through a, a seedy part of yeah. town, all these honky-tonks and saloons mm-hmm. and things. And I think he knows at that point for sure. Yeah. Doesn't, But he doesn't react in any way. He doesn't say anything. I think he definitely knows by that point. Yeah. I agree, yeah. yeah. And then he, he still comes back for her. Right. Like, you know. Yeah, that's true. Now, whether he knew early on is... I I'm mean, he sure. laid a lot of groundwork. It'd be hard to <laughs> double back on that at that's that true. point. That's true. <laughs> 
what a jerk he he's, would be. He's, he's already much. proposed to her. But that's what everyone thinks <laughs> yeah. is going to happen. Right. I mean, once they think, oh, once he finds out, yeah. that's what's going to happen. Yeah. It's like there's this big bomb that's going to drop yes. that everyone else knows about except him. Right. But maybe he does know about it. I don't know. <laughs> Like you said, it, it's a, one of those nice ambiguities of this movie that it's not over-explained right, to you. And right. it's something mm. to talk about afterwards. Yeah. Going back to sort of the plot, they, they have this dinner table scene at their first stop. Then they have the, the second leg of the trip, which is in that snow that you, you right, referenced. Right, right. Toward Apache Wells, which is the next output post run by the Mexican man and his wife, mm-hmm. and his Apache wife, where we find out that... Lucy is pregnant and that the baby is coming. Yes. <laughs> and that the doctor it better sober up. Because <laughs> yes. it's all happening. <laughs> yeah, another thing about this movie in terms of class and everything is the people who react the the, the best in moments of crisis yeah. are Doc, Dallas, and Ringo. Yeah. All the people who were shunned and judged and, and looked down upon yeah. in this movie. Yeah. They all rise to the occasion. Yeah. And then the the others, the snooty ones, are indebted to them. Yes, yeah. And they have to realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't have judged them. Yeah. There's that moment at the end when they're taking Lucy away on the stretcher, and she says to Dallas, if you ever you know, need anything, if anything I can ever yeah. do, and she just sort of stops and trails off and doesn't quite say it. Yeah. It's like she knows like she's been terrible, and is she really even going to do anything? Like, yeah. will, will she just fall back into her normal society? And Regarding that scene... It wasn't in the original, the first cut of the movie. Oh. Ford um, showed it to Louise Platt, or Louise Platt was at a screening of, of the first cut. Mm-hmm. And she said, like, oh, I think I, my character needs a little more closure. And Ford fought her and fought her. Right. <laughs> I know best. And, sure. And finally, he just, like, walked off in silence. Like, just cut the conversation off. The next day, she was called to do a reshoot. Really? And it was this scene. Wow. Yeah. He's probably mad that she was right. Yeah. <laughs> Dallas. If there's ever anything I can do for... I know. And back to, like, the baby. When Dallas comes out with the baby in her arms to show all the the men who've been waiting, Mm -hmm. and she's holding it, and they're all standing around and Mm -hmm. phoning over it, you see Wayne over to the side... He doesn't say anything, has no dialogue, mm-hmm. but he's watching Dallas hold the baby. Mm-hmm. And just the look on his eye. I mean, oh, there's yeah. so much going on in that scene. Yeah. And finally, uh, Ford eventually towards the end cuts to a big close-up of Wayne. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it just tells yeah. so much of the story. There's there's dialogue happening about, oh, how is she? What's, what's going right. on? But I think the focus is just Wayne watching Dallas with the baby and seeing what could be for the two of them. And that directly precedes his proposal? I think it's right before, yeah. Yeah. After the baby's born, um, they have to to leave pretty quickly, even though there's a lot of debate between them over how quickly they should leave, given um, we have this new mother that is still recovering. Right. All of a sudden, Carradine's defending Doc Boone's opinion. Right. (laughs) But they have to make the final leg to Lordsburg, where we get the big Indian attack. Right. The big chase scene. The big chase it's, scene. I think, like, the most famous thing about this movie, in a yeah. way, and has some incredible stunts. A, a tie between that and the intro of John, of John Wayne, Wayne yeah. yeah. And the the chase was shot at a dry lake near Victorville, California. Stuntman Yakima Kanut yes. performed these amazing stunts. I love talking about Yakima Kanut because he he really sort of helped found the, the stunt profession in filmmaking. 
there were many stupid men in early film history that just <laughs> fell off of horses and jumped off of buildings and whatnot. What, really? Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't really until, until Yakima and, and a number of his colleagues at the time who were coming from this rodeo background mm-hmm. that start, started instituting safety precautions and cables and wires and stuff. So I really wanted to give him his due and, and talk about right. his, his whole life story because he plays such a crucial role in Western film history and in Western history, really. And, and he's some, a name that comes up a lot, I would say. Right. So Yakima, the, the man with the rather unusual name, uh, was actually born Enos Canut, and he got his nickname at the 1914 Pendleton Roundup, the, the rodeo competition, when a newspaper caption misidentified him as being from the Yakima River Valley in Washington. And while he is from Washington, he is not from Yakima. He's, oh. <laughs> he's claimed to be the most the most famous person not from Yakima. <laughs> he grew up on his family's ranch um, where he became a prize-winning rodeo rider uh, before moving to Hollywood in the 1920s to act. He supposedly broke a wild bronco when he was 11 and at 17 won the title of world's best bronco buster. And then he would also marry and then later divorce the champion lady bronco wow. rider of the world. <laughs> That's some uh, bronc riding royalty oh, in the, yeah. one family. In between his rodeo riding, uh, he broke horses for the French government in World War One and enlisted in the U.S. Navy. When he finally made it to L.A. for a rodeo, initially, he met Tom Mix, who we've talked about on the podcast before, right? who invited him to be in one of his movies. Mix also would end up borrowing two of Yakima's shirts and getting 40 copies made by his tailor. <laughs> And you'll see this kind of as a theme, that people would look to Yakima as the authentic Western cowboy and imitate him. That's interesting. In his rodeo career, he would win three years in a row at the Fort Worth Rodeo, where we've been. Yeah. <laughs> so it became known as Yak's Show. Wow. He would do, he would do some acting here in the, the 20s in, in silent films. Uh, but with the advent of the talkie, he, like many actors at the time realized he kind of needed to do something to keep his career alive because he had had his voice damaged from getting the flu in the Navy. So he started taking on more and more action roles, which was his forte, after all. And this is when he started developing new harnesses and cable rigs and stuff to make these stunts safer that they were doing. Among those, he invented the L stirrup, which allowed a man to fall off a horse without getting hung up in the stirrup. He invented the shotgun device and shot cord that would cause wagon crashes. Uh, while releasing the team in in a consistent spot every time, which is important wow. in filmmaking right. to, to hit the, your spot every single time. Right. He also invented the running W stunt, which would bring down a galloping horse with a wire on the ground, but which is now banned because right. it often killed the animals. Right. Yeah. So that's, that one's not great. I right. mean, it, it got the job done. It solved a problem, but caused a lot of cruelty, unfortunately. And then he also invented a, a step attached to the saddle, uh, to make the transfer to another moving object, to another horse, to another wagon, whatever, which you'll see some of that stunt in this film. Right. Um, and he mastered a lot of his most famous stunts, including those that uh, he would use in Stagecoach, like the famous drag under the coach mm-hmm. and mascot pictures serials. By 1934, he became Republic Studios' top stuntman, handling Gene Autry, Lone Ranger, and Zorro films. For one of the Zorro films, Zorro Rides Again, he did almost all the scenes in which Zorro wore a mask. <laughs> wow. So he's basically in he's it Zorro. so much. Yeah. 
And often in scripts, when they were just describing an action scene, they would just say, see Yakima Canut for action sequences. <laughs> so they wouldn't even bother writing it. Wow. So, I mean, really, he kind of developed a writing career as well as a stunt directing career. Just creating the, the, the stunts on right. his own. Yeah. yeah. He would meet John Wayne while doubling for him in a motorcycle stunt in 1932's The Shadow of the Eagle. There was sort of a mutual respect on both sides of that relationship. Knut respected Wayne's willingness to learn and to attempt his own stunts, like like you mentioned, Ford respected. Yes. Meanwhile, Wayne admired Yakima's agility and fearlessness, mm-hmm. which is crucial for a stuntman, I would have to say. <laughs> Yakima taught Wayne how to fall off a horse, and together they created the scene-fighting technique that I think lots of children across the world currently do, where you sort of stage it for camera without actually making contact, right. without actually throwing punches. Right. You're just making it look like. But somebody had to invent right. that, and it was these two guys. <laughs> and once again, John Wayne copied a lot of Yakima's persona, including, supposedly, his famous drawl and his famous walk. Hmm. I've heard a couple of differing stories on those, but... Yeah, I've heard the walk comes from Paul Fix, right. who was Harry Carey Jr.'s father-in-law, and played like the martial on Rifleman and is in countless movies. But, yeah. Yeah. But su- supposedly Wayne really studied Yakima yeah. and took note of, of how this real Western guy right. walked and talked. Yes. Yeah. He was the real deal. So. Yeah. Ford hired Yakima for stagecoach on Wayne's recommendation. And, and Ford was so pleased with how Yakima solved the problem of safely shooting the stagecoach river crossing, which you see in the film is created attaching logs right. to sort of buoy it. Right. And, and then also there's an underwater cable pulling it. But before Yakima sort of figured that out, Ford was just going to take that scene out of the script. Um, so as a result of that, Ford just kind of gave Yakima free reign to just do the stunts. <laughs> and the, the, the trick, the, the solution was that the logs were hollow. I right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One of the stunts he performs is during the chase, he's doubling for an Apache on horseback and he jumps from his horse to the lead horse of the team of the stagecoach and then is shot. Mm-hmm. And starts and falls under the rigging of the coach. Yeah. It's a scene you've maybe seen mimicked in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Spielberg's. He goes under the stagecoach with it going at, I don't know how fast it was going, like 40 miles an hour or something. Well, that's what Yakima said was you have to run the horses fast so they'll run straight. If they run slow, they move around a lot. When you turn loose to go under the coach, you've got to bring your arms over your chest and stomach. You've got to hold your elbows close to your body, or that front axle will knock them off. Wow. And after they shot it, Yakima ran to Ford to make sure they got it on film. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure the camera's rolling. And Ford replied that even if they hadn't gotten it, I'll never shoot that again. Yeah. The cameramen, I think they were running three cameras at the time. Two of them weren't sure whether they got it or not. The third said they did. And, but for yeah, like you said, Ford said uh, we're not doing it. A again. man could have died. Yeah, and yeah, easily. <laughs> and I know, and Knut, uh, added a thing at the end, like once the, he's clear of the stagecoach, he gets up like on his elbows and knees, and then collapses like he's dead. Yeah. And that was to show that it wasn't a dummy, that it was an actual yeah. man doing the stunt. That's yeah. that really sells it. Yeah. I think the most memorable thing about Yakima's action and stunts in Stagecoach, and bearing in mind there were many other stunts in it, but but the one stunt that everybody remembers is the jump onto the horses, the team, the slide under the Stagecoach. The way it was shot, it was incredibly well shot. When you look at it now and you you realize that the equipment they were dealing with, they'd have an old truck chassis, flatbed on it, out in the desert, 
And if you look at it today, it's as smooth as a gyroscope. It's, 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 it's absolutely incredibly shot. You see a man doing it for real. Once again, just Ford was so impressed with Yakima that he said that whenever he made an action picture and Yakima wasn't working, he was on Ford's payroll. Yeah. <laughs> and I can take that as a promise. I feel like Ford wouldn't let you down. Right. <laughs> and then there's the second stunt. Yeah. Dandy Devine is shot and loses the reins. And so John Wayne has to jump out to the leaders to uh, take control of the yeah. horses. And that's Kanat, obviously, again. And he's jumping yeah. on the, uh, what is it, the tongue of the, mm -hmm. the rig and, and climbing onto from, the horse from the, from the each top. Each pair. Yeah, to, each pair of horses. The next and this is six front. horses. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Following this, in 1939, uh, Yakima doubled for Clark Gable in the burning of Atlanta and Gone with the Wind. Oh. Finally, he, he had to sort of face another change in his career when, as he was aging, so maybe he couldn't do the stunts as well. And then he also was seriously getting injured <laughs> as many stuntmen were i mean despite right. the safety precautions sure a horse fell on him damaging his intestines which he had to have like a really serious surgery for yeah um and then a few years after that he broke both his legs at the ankles in the fall of a wagon oh my gosh so he began more directing usually second unit right. action directing he became one of the top second unit or action directors in the mid 20th century right he especially is known for the chariot race in 1959's Ben-Hur. Right. He started training 80 horses in, in Italy two years before production began on that film. <laughs> and then he trained Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd to do their own charioteering. They spent five months on the race sequence, wow. which is an infamous sequence. So, I mean, check it out if you have Yeah, it. it's, it's... It's so impressive. It's the best thing in that movie, yeah. I think. Yes, I, mean, it's, I agree. Yeah. yeah. But not a single horse or nor human was hurt, wow. which was not true of the previous Ben-Hur. The only person that got hurt, I will say, <laughs> was Yakima's son, Joe Kanut, who was also a, a stuntman, who cut his chin while doubling for Charlton because he didn't follow Yakima's advice mm. to hook himself to the chariot when the chariot bounced over a wrecked chariot. You gotta listen to Dad. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. His other son, Tap, nicknamed after Tapadero, Oh. Uh, was also a stuntman, often working with his father. Uh -huh. Finally, in 1966, Yakima was awarded a special Oscar for helping create the stunt profession and for developing safety devices used everywhere. Half a century ago, a 22-year-old cowboy with both brains and guts stepped in front of a movie camera for the first time. One of the first things he learned was that uh, movies should move, and he's spent his life ever since making sure they do. Before movies could even talk, he'd already performed some incredible stunts that have since become legendary. And by the time he'd made his reputation as the greatest stuntman of all time, he'd devised special safety devices and stunt techniques that are still used by the men who make up the profession to which he gave so much. But that's only half the story of the remarkable man we're honoring tonight. When he stopped doing the stunts himself, he became what the film world acknowledges as the most talented director of action sequences ever to put motion on the screen. Take any half dozen of his credits, Boomtown, Ben-Hur, Stagecoach, El Cid, Gone with the Wind, Khartoum, and you'll see some of the reasons why the board of directors is honoring him tonight with this special award. And I think he was really he believed he was accepting it on behalf of 
every stunt person he'd worked with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was for him, but, but it was really for the profession. Thank you. I want to thank the uh, Academy. Uh, not so much, not so much uh, for what I have enjoyed doing my, all these years myself, and hope to continue doing. But in the name of all those stuntmen and women who kept defying busted bones, bashed in heads to make pictures more real and reality more picturesque. They're a great gang, and I'm honored you chose me to honor them. Now what do you say if we saddle up and get some action? <laughs> <laughs> He worked steadily in Hollywood for more than 56 years and died at the age of 90. Wow. Despite all of these wow. injuries, all this like hard, hard work <laughs> on his body. That's a rough life. And to make it to 90, to 90. that's that's quite, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> he accomplished a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That you can't underestimate the importance of his, his contributions yeah. to this movie. Bringing it back to Stagecoach, The Chase. Uh, a lot of people talk about The Chase and, and you know, what an amazing set piece it is. It's often noted that Ford breaks the 180 degree rule. I've watched I've watched it a few times, mm-hmm. and I've never noticed it. Yeah, you don't notice it, and that's something... and I often do. I think when I, I've seen other directors break the the 180 degree rule. But there's something about the the chase that you know you understand where what what's happening, and it doesn't matter if the camera's over here or over there. I think you it's know, not dialogue, right? And it's two clear factions fighting each mm-hmm. other. Right. If you're breaking the under the 180 uh, rule in a dialogue scene, that's going to throw you off. Just to explain that, yeah. um, for those that don't know, the 180 degree rule, if you imagine a plane between two actors, let's right. say, you always want to keep the camera on one side of that plane so that you always have actor A on the left and actor B on the right, right. even if you're cutting between sort of different angles. Right, so they don't look like they're both looking the same direction in different yeah. cuts. You can move the camera around yes. within that 180 degree span, but you don't want to flip to the other side of the circle, so right. to speak. It's sort of a basic rule in filmmaking. Yeah. But yeah, you don't notice it at all in this, no. I think. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And we should mention uh, cinematographer was Burt Glennon, right. uh, who was a regular Ford collaborator. And his son, Burt's son, James, would also become a cinematographer, mm-hmm. uh, working regularly for Alexander Payne. Oh, wow. What a great director. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of Burt Glennon, yeah. I would say, you know, his his photography in this movie, I think, is really standout. Yeah. Ford had uh, ceilings built on all the sets which forced Glennon to use more natural light from the windows and doors and things. And that use of ceilings obviously was uh, incorporated by Orson Welles and Citizen mm-hmm. Kane. But he, that was that's rare to see ceilings. Yes, ceilings I mean, even sets. pay attention to movies you're watching today and you won't see a ceiling. Right, but Ford makes sure to show those ceilings in almost all those uh, yeah. stagecoach depots and things. And Welles famously said he had watched stagecoach like 40 times yeah. in preparing to make Citizen Kane. And then later in life, he said, someone asked him who his favorite directors were. And he said, I love the old masters, by which I mean John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. And Burt Glennon was nominated for an Oscar for cinematography on this film. He also shot Ford's first color film, Drums Along the Mohawk, also in 1939. Mm-hmm. He worked with directors like Von Sternberg, Andre de Toth, Raoul Walsh, and Cecil B. DeMille. 
While we're on it, I'll mention the other Oscar buzz the film got. It had two wins, uh, one for Best Supporting Actor for Thomas Mitchell, mm -hmm. and then for Best Music Scoring. We've got Richard Hageman, W. Franca Harley, John Leopold, and Leo Shukin. That stagecoach, the theme, whenever the stagecoach yeah. is going... I can't see a stagecoach in any other movie without hearing that in my head. It's like ingrained in my That's head. That's funny. Yeah, I'm just singing it afterwards. <laughs> and Ford was nominated for Best Director Oscar. He did not win. Um, I it's think the this... only Best Director nomination he ever lost. Yes, yeah. Every and ever... the only one of his five Best Director nominations that was for a Western. Yeah. After this, people like looked down on the Western. Yeah. It was no longer serious, you know, to take something to take seriously in a you way. You mean later, like in Later, the... yes, later years, yeah. Yeah. Even though I think he's made much better Westerns than this later in his career. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But he did win the New York Film Critics Award for Best Director. Mm. For their Oscar nominations, got a Best Picture nomination, Best Art Direction for Alexander Toloboff, Best Cinematography Black and White for Burt Glennon, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, and Best Film Editing for Otto Lovering and Dorothy Spencer. Mm -hmm. uh, it was their first pairing with Ford. They were sort of a team. Lovering would go on to edit for Ford from 1962 to 1966, uh, starting again with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and then Spencer would later edit My Darling Clementine. According to Spencer, Dorothy Spencer, another one of those great editors who happens to be a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ford cut in camera and then left it to the editors to put it together. And she said, unlike most directors, he never even went to rushes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he got what he wanted and right. then he trusted his team to sort of make it work. Exactly. Again, great sign of a director, I would say. I think so. Yeah. He wouldn't shoot a lot of coverage so that you didn't really have a lot of options mm -hmm. to, to, to mess it up if you, you know, yeah. in his mind. And back to the Oscars, like we mentioned, this film came out in 1939, which is often hailed as the greatest year. Mm -hmm. and it's one of those years that's considered the all-time great mm -hmm. years of Hollywood. Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington came out that year. Don't you have a couple other big westerns come out that year? Yeah, you do. This movie, it's mentioned as kicking off the adult western mm -hmm. and the A-western. And I think it did contribute to that. I think also there must have been something in the air because... Yeah. In 1939, there were several other big Westerns coming out. Fox made Jesse James with Tyrone Power. You mentioned uh, Union Pacific mm -hmm. came out in 1939 with C.B. DeMille. Now, this was released in March of 1939, which is pretty amazing. It previewed in February. They wrapped shooting in December, mm -hmm. like Christmas. It was already previewed in February and in theaters in March. And they did some reshoots, too. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. fast. <laughs> it is fast. So, obviously, its success contributed to other Westerns coming out. Because and then in 1940, you had like the Westerner from William Wyler, mm -hmm. and the return of Frank James. But anyways, it kicked off the Western. Right. But I think there must have been something in the air that the Western was about to make a comeback. Yeah. This just kind of jump-started it. I wonder if it goes back to what you were saying, that, that it's coming during the Depression, and maybe people are, I don't know, getting more in touch with their roots, getting in touch with what it means to be an American, and right. sort of some maybe similarities to the Old West. Do you think there's something there? Could be. Because so many Western heroes go against right. the norms of society and they break the law and they yeah. do what they, you know, what what's right and what they need to do. And maybe there was something in that. They're having to strike out on their own, fight against corruption. Right, which was, yeah, definitely a problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> regarding the uh, portrayal of the Apache in this, yes. in this movie. That's another factor that's been batted about more recently. Right. Ford often gets criticized for his treatment of the Indians in this movie. 
they aren't developed in any way. No. There's no motivation. We're just told that Geronimo's on the warpath. We don't know why. I don't well, know. He's that... Geronimo. <laughs> I think is what they would say. <laughs> and I, I mean, there aren't any native characters in this, really. No. You have the wife of the Mexican man at the outpost, right? And then Chief John Bigtree plays the Cheyenne scout who reports the uh, the breakout from the reservation right. by Geronimo. The, and by the way, the wife who is named Yakima. Oh, that's right. I don't know if that's a tribute to Yakima <laughs> or not. And she gets a whole song yeah, to herself. I, I think she, the actress, like popularized the Bolero song or oh, something. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think but she's it kind of like, a star. Hmm. It seems like a, a nod to Yakima. Yeah. And it's it's true that the the Indians in this are just something to be overcome. Yes. And they, they just show up and attack. Right. They're, they're just, the external conflict coming their in. Plot here. device. Yeah. And I think Ford later would handle that much better even as soon as Fort Apache I think he takes a very pro-Indian stance yeah. in that and I know people nowadays still have a lot of criticisms about how he approached them but I think he's on his starting with Fort Apache on his way to a different point of view and, and really you know taking their side on things and I'm I'm in agreement agreement with you on that in that I think in the rest of Ford's career his portrayal of uh, native characters is more nuanced and complicated. Yes. I And especially compared to contemporaries, I would say. That, that there is something there that he wants to explore. Right. I, and even if it's still not in the best light or it's maybe not the most authentic or not giving the most agency. Right. It's still a complex portrayal. Yeah. And he doesn't take like a, a, a bleeding heart point of view. Mm-hmm. He makes... His white characters are complex. They they do good. They do yeah. bad. And I think he does the same with all characters right. in his stories. Now, granted, he mostly is telling stories about white characters, yes. but I, I think there is more to for. I think people have knee jerk reaction to portrayals and don't really pay attention to what's happening and give him credit. I think that's true. I, th- I think maybe people should take a closer look at some of his, especially like you say, his later uh, right. career films. Right. And give him a chance. <laughs> he became close with the Navajo uh, working in Monument Valley. Right. This is the first yeah, time. Yeah, behind the scenes, it's a whole other story, yes, I would say. Yes, yes. They gave him the nickname Natani Nez, which means tall soldier. <laughs> I am an honorary chief. I'm on the board of, uh, on the Indian board. And they have a name for me, a Navajo name. And over the years, I mean, since I've been up there, I've picked up, I can... I'm not fluent, but I can talk to them in Navajo. What is your name in Indian? Well, it's one I don't like, Natani Nez. means tall soldier. And I'm not a soldier, I'm a Navy man. And I object to it very strongly, but they have no word for sailor. So, I let it go. You know, if you could ride a horse and you had a, an interesting face, mm-hmm. you were going to be in, in mm-hmm. one of his movies. And he, he paid the Navajo uh, solid wages. You know, think union rate, union rate, standard. Right. There was a winter during around the time he made She Wore the Old Ribbon when they were blanketed with snow and they couldn't get any supplies. Mm-hmm. And Ford used his contacts in the military to have them airdrop supplies to them. Yeah, I, I have it that he employed more than 200 local Navajo Indians right. to play the, the warriors. And to do other roles behind the scenes. Uh, but meanwhile, that movie booklet that I referenced at the beginning, I would say, told a different story and was very demeaning to the Indians. I was kind of shocked at, at what it said. It had a lot of background on 
Western issues, I would say, that maybe Stagecoach deals with, so you have a context for the film that you're going into. And so it talked about the, the Navajo and about the Apache, and it described the, the Navajo of Monument Valley as being obsessed with silver coins and turquoise. It kind of described them as being like backward compared to like the mechanized cities and stuff. And, and it had this quote, Ford had to have a few Apache types for close-ups to show the features of actual Apaches. <laughs> like, making it seem like wow. he gave him this little handout wow. because he just had to have his little Indians in the movie. That's ridiculous. Yeah. This is the marketing department right. in the UA? Wow. That's terrible. Yeah. But Ford, you know, loved going to Monument Valley. Yeah. He became friends with Harry Goulding. And, and Goulding, he spoke Navajo. He understood mm. the language. So he would work on set with Ford and translate. Mm. with the Navajo and help Ford. And Ford would just pop in every now and then from time to time to Monument Valley just to visit, even if he wasn't making a movie. Yeah. And, you know, always was always welcome there. They had a friendship, so. In the context of the story, what do you think of the the battle scene with the Apache? Mm. I mean, it is like the cavalry coming in sort of as... Yeah, it's I mean, very cliché. It's the cavalry coming in, <laughs> that, that old <laughs> saying of this deus ex yeah. machina saving the main characters. I don't find the chase that interesting. Yeah, I, I have never been huh. that excited about it. To me, the later scene where John, where they get to Lordsburg and John Wayne has the gunfight with the plumbers, I find a much more interesting scene. The chase, the cavalry, it's just sort of like a cliche, like you said. Yeah. I mean, the stunts are great. Yeah, the stunts are great. I don't want to diminish that, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not that excited by the chase. What, what are, what's your thought on it? The few times I, I've seen Stagecoach. I'm always struck when the attack is over and the cavalry come in, save the day, and then there's a whole other chunk of the film left. Like, it feels yeah, like yeah. a false ending to me. Yeah. And yet, when the, the Ringo shootout happens afterwards, that also feels like a great ending. Yeah. And so, I'm like, every time I'm torn between when it should end <laughs> it does have two endings. Yeah. And maybe that's why I'm not as interested in the chase, is like, I want. The conclusion to John Wayne's story. Yeah. And that's what I'm... I'm interested in, like, the character, right. you know? Right. The character moments. You don't know who the cavalry are. They're, or, that, the, or who the Apache or are. Or the They're Apache these, are. like, it's just, faceless characters, yeah, basically. It's just something to put everybody in peril and right. to bring them together. Right. There are a few nice touches in, the, in that chase. I like the moment where... Just before Hatfield is going to kill, uh, mm -hmm. save he saved the last bullet for for Lucy Mallory to spare her from right. the, the fate worse than death. <laughs> right, not that moment specifically, oh. but the music blends oh, in. Yeah. The music of the sound, the score, sort of blends in with the trumpet of the cavalry. Mm. So it's like it it segues from the score to the cavalry trumpet. And I think that's an interesting moment. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't notice it, which I would say is a credit yeah. to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, li I like that moment, and they're just, it's, sh you know, it's shot great, yeah. and it's exciting, but it, it, I want the, yeah. the conclusion of John Wayne's yeah. story. Apparently, people questioned Ford on why in this big chase battle scene, the Indians didn't simply shoot the horses. Right, right, yeah. And, and he said, <laughs> because that would have been the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I think, contextually, the Apaches wouldn't have killed the horses, just culturally. Yeah, horses is a valuable they would have, commodity. They would have stolen them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they would probably want the horses. Yeah. I mean, that's why they're stopping the stagecoach. And it, more it, than it would be something to, to show off, too. Yeah, yeah that's of, a property. I won that's, these, yes, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'll kill the humans. <laughs> And I think people don't really understand, you know, they don't right. know 
that that would be it's a fair question it is a fair question yeah i mean if they really wanted to just stop the coach that would be the way to do it but but like you said we don't even know why they want to stop the coach what's motivating them right i mean mean, really other than causing trouble well i mean i would just say the motivation is oh these white people are on our land let's kill them right which is totally reasonable fair (laughs) yes they're taking our land right and i think to me it's understood that that's what's happening yeah that that's why they're after right i mean it's not just to kill it's it's right they're fighting a war yeah so i don't know that you necessarily need some explanation some long explanation for it going back to the the final sequence ringo's shootout with the plumber brothers the plumber brothers yeah I also am torn about that shootout mm-hmm. in that, on one hand, like that there's an ambiguity at first to what happens, what the results of, of the gunfight gun are. Yeah. You just see John Wayne hit the deck, their shots fired, we're seeing it from Dallas's perspective as she's hearing the shots. Right, and, she's not within eyesight of it. Right, yeah. yeah, she just hears mm-hmm. the shots a little bit further away and I think expects the worst. She expects right. she's going to be alone and you see Luke, Luke Plummer come into the saloon, but then he starts to, starts to stumble and then he falls over. I love that. I think that's a great moment. Uh-huh. On the one hand, I feel that I was robbed of an action shootout scene. To me, I love that it's interrupted, that you don't yeah. see it. I think that's that's one of the things I love about that gunfight is that it's not expected. It's not what yeah. traditionally would happen. Yeah. Like I said, I, I don't know what to make of it because yeah. I agree, but I also feel like it, it's some sort of way around... Like around having a higher budget to have this long scene, or like, or it feels like a scene that was tacked on at the end of the schedule of like we need a resolution. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Let's just have them fire shots and then we'll cut to Dallas, mm. sort of thing. Interesting. I I'm a, I'm of two minds about this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I I love that gun sh- I, the gunfight. I love that it's shot at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it is. It is really atmospheric. Yeah. And, and and going back to like cliches and uh, when we first see Luke Plummer, he's playing poker and he has. The dead man's yeah. hand, aces and eights, which mm-hmm. is, you know, just like a Ford playing on the, right. the cliches again. One of the actors who plays his brother is Vester Pegg, who... <laughs> That's a name. <laughs> know, who was Woo. in Ford's first film, Straight mm-hmm. Shooting, and in a gunfight with Harry Carey Sr., which is shot, not at night, but in almost sort of the same setup. Mm. And Harry Carey Jr. talks about seeing the movie at the theater with his father. Mm. Both actors, of course, were John Ford regulars. Yeah. Um and he recall, recalls his dad complaining all the time. We did that back in the back in our day. We did that, and just for just recycling things right. he had done in the past. And he, you know, modeled Wayne after yeah. uh, Harry Carey Senior. Mm. Wayne even dresses quite a lot like Harry Carey Senior's character, Cheyenne mm. Harry, and carries a rifle like he did. And I mean, in a lot of ways, you could say that it is just a big hunk of recycling various yeah. Ford. <laughs> old hat things various sort of staples from i don't know going back to like canterbury tales or something yeah. of like these passengers trapped together right of di- differing ba- backgrounds it's um, like a whole genre of itself of that that sure. type of story oh yeah, yeah. just taking from other western stories and films yet there's something about stagecoach that just makes it like the archetype like yeah, yeah. it is the the one yes, of those yes yes it's like perfect in a way, mm-hmm. and even though there are later Ford, Ford films that I find that I want to watch, revisit more, that mm-hmm. I find more interesting, even though they're not as perfect as Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like he does more interesting things yeah. later, but this movie is just like textbook. Like 
there are always things like moments taken out of context or maybe like from a lesser director or something that would be kind of laughable from a modern eye just because they're so cliche yeah but when you're in the midst of watching the whole film you're just taken with it yeah there's yeah. no thought given to it it's just you're with these characters you're with these the story they're all great. the magic of movie making <laughs> isn't the world great <laughs> they're i mean and all the characters are great yeah. other than maybe the banker they're yeah. all and lucy's kind of boring but <laughs> <laughs> yeah she kind of is yeah she doesn't really have much to do but, yeah but you know everybody else is entertaining in their own way and another thing i would say about this going back to monument mm -hmm. valley even though it's spectacular to see that that first mm -hmm. wide shot with the stagecoach so tiny on the frame and the yeah. the monuments in the background i feel like it's not as pictorially and poetically beautiful as later ford films would yeah be. he really comes into his use of monument valley right. later you'll hate me for saying this yeah. but color adds a lot <laughs> You love color. I would even say my, my Darling Clementine, which is black yes, and white, yeah. is much more yeah. poetically beautiful than this film. Uh, well, and we and we didn't mention in this film, I think they, they loop around the valley three yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> so you're seeing like the mittens just, just over times, and over. Yeah. And but I mean no one no one would have known but, at this time. Yeah. But maybe no one knows now that, that isn't that it isn't where it's you know. But it's I mean, for Ford it's it's uh you know, it stands in it's a mythical West. It's right. not I mean it's it's here it's arizona new mexico and the searchers it's texas right. and you know and he would go there many times or moab which is just up the road yeah. and shoot there and rarely did he not make a western in mm. either location mm -hmm. after that and if, if he did it was for a purpose yeah you know? well by that point they had just like a flow with production <laughs> and they right. knew everybody there and it was probably easy and, and, and like go. we said far away from hollywood yeah. from prying eyes it's from nosy studio execs but I love to work up there. It's a nice place. So before we start wrapping things up, I just had a few odds and ends about the cast that I, I wanted to, to mention. Talking about John Carradine, um, he first became a member of Ford's stock company in 1936 with The Prisoner of Shark Island. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make 11 films total with, with Ford. Carradine claimed to have appeared in more than 450 films. <laughs> that might be possible. That might be right. Experts say the number might be lower, but it's still a lot. It's, is he's the in point. a lot, yeah. Yeah. I didn't personally count them, I'll admit. <laughs> On set, Carradine and Louise Platt supposedly endlessly talked about Shakespeare the entire time they were together, until finally Donald Meek, their co-star, snapped, jumped up onto the dining table. Mind you, he's this, like, cute little right. old man. <laughs> Broke off the neck of a Coke bottle and charged at John before finally being restrained, saying, All I've heard... For five weeks is Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. I can't stand it for another minute. <laughs> and while we're on the, the topic of Meek, uh, before becoming an actor, he was an, on an acrobatic team on the high wire from the age of 14. Then at 18, he went to fight in the Spanish-American War in Cuba, wow. where he contracted yellow fever, and supposedly that's how he lost his hair. Really? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know. I, didn't... I don't know whether this is just a story he's, he's... telling people. <laughs> Because he, he sounds like a colorful character. Because <laughs> he looks like he's just a normal just naturally bald. bald. Yeah, just yeah. naturally balding. Yeah. Um, he reportedly weighed 81 pounds. Yeah, he's a little guy. He's a little guy. Uh, and a New York Times review of the movie called him the cutest coach rider in the wagon. <laughs> he's the cutest one. <laughs> all in all, it's been exciting. A very interesting trip. Has it not? About Louise Platt, who we mentioned many times, she was was coming from Broadway before Stagecoach. Right. 
and would return after, even though this was a big hit, uh, and would end up working on only seven films in her, in her career from 38 to 42. Yeah, I saw that looking up. I was like, why haven't I seen her in anything else? And, yeah. and that's, that's Just why. Just a handful. Yeah. yeah. Thomas Mitchell, who played the drunken doctor, uh, was also nominated for playing a drunken doctor in 1937's The Hurricane, right, uh, which we, we mentioned, yeah. and then was nominated for this as well. Right. So kind of two back-to-back drunken doctor nominations yes. for him. And in that same year, he was in Gone with the Wind, Only Angels Have Wings wow. for Howard Hawks, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I mean, that's... that's 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 some impressive credits for one year. Like you say, that's what makes 1939 yeah. such a such a year for film. Yeah. Uh, but, but apparently he had stopped drinking alcohol uh, more than two years before playing this character. <laughs> but I guess he had some experience He, he, he knew prior. what to do, yeah. We mentioned Claire Trevor's nomination for Dead End. She mm-hmm. would go on to be nominated again for The High and Mighty in 1954 and would win for Key Largo in right. 1948. And The High and Mighty re- reunited her with John Wayne. Exactly. As And the next year she was in... Dark Command with John Wayne, and I think they did the Allegheny Uprising in together in 39 or 40, also another Western with the two of them. And George Bancroft, as we mentioned, who played Curly, he was a noted silent star, known for working for Joseph von Sternberg in uh, three of his m- biggest pictures from that era, Thunderbolt, Underworld, and um, The Docks of New York. Andy Devine, of course, would work with Ford again in films like Two Road Together and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He's also the voice of Friar Tuck in uh, the Disney Robin Hood. Classic. All right, laugh, you two rogues. He worked with Roy Rogers quite a bit, and he has an interesting role, a little small part in 1932's Law and Order, which is uh, Mm -hmm. an excellent Western, if you can find it. And Tim Holt, who plays the the cavalry lieutenant, as we mentioned, he was the son of actor Jack Holt, um, and he was under contract to Walter Ranger, I think you mentioned. Mm -hmm. He would later work for Ford as Virgil Earp in My Darling Clementine. Went to school with Bud Bedecker. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And he, two of his most important roles were Orson Welles in 1942's uh, The Magnificent Ambersons. He had the lead in that, Mm -hmm. and then worked with John Huston in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. He also had a long career starring in B-Westerns at RKO. He made like 40 Westerns where he was the lead. Mm -hmm. He served in the Army, Air Force, and World War II and won a Purple Heart. I have my orders, sir, and I always obey orders. 1939, everything sort of came together for Ford in his career in terms of his directing style. And he goes on an amazing run that is interrupted only by World War II. Uh, He starts with Stagecoach. He has Young Mr. Lincoln, Drums Along the Mohawk. The Long Voyage Home, How Green Was My Valley, Grapes of Wrath. He wins two Best Director Oscars in this period. And like I said, World War II only, you know, halts that. But I think even the post-war, you know, he really becomes known for the Western. And at that point, he's like, I'm, you know, he starts making the films that he wants to make and really makes some great, amazing pictures. His mature style starts here. I feel like the war really spurred him. Like, took him to a new level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I agree. He directed nine films nominated for Best Picture and directed ten different actors in Oscar-nominated performances. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know who else has numbers like that. I know. He's won more Oscars than any director. Yeah. He's got the, a couple of uh, Best Documentary Director or Best mm-hmm. Documentary wins. And then, you know, going back to the Western, this did kick off a resurgence in the Western. In, in the 1939 and 40 alone, you had Union Pacific, Northwest Passage, Jesse James, Dodge City... The Oklahoma Kid, Frontier Marshal, Destry Rides Again, The Return of Frank James, The Westerner, Arizona, Dark Command, Santa Fe Trail, Virginia City. I mean, it's a lot. It's just a lot of westerns, and the western 
becomes like the most popular genre yeah. after this. All the major stars make them. People were sick of westerns because they were so bad, and then they got sick of westerns because they, <laughs> were, they so were so good, many, yeah. and then they got bad again. <laughs> right. It's a whole cycle. Yeah. There's sort of a lull at the end of the 40s, and then yeah. the 50s really is the peak period of the American western. This movie was remade in mm-hmm. 1966 with an all-star cast. Alex Cord plays the Ringo Kid. Hmm. Kind of uh, tough boots to fill, I would say. Yeah. And then there's a TV version from the 80s, 1980s, where Chris Christopherson plays the Ringo Kid. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and Johnny Cash are all in it as well. <laughs> and you've seen both of those. Are either of them worth watching? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have it there, folks. I mean, it's, you know, if you just want some, you know, fun yeah. with the with the, with the the Highwayman, sure. I don't, other people enjoy the 1966 one. I found it kind of dull and pointless. I didn't really like yeah. it. Even though, like, Slim Pickens is in it and Van Heflin right. and Bing Crosby, I just I didn't care for it. I think it's interesting that upon release, I'm always going back to the, to the sort of the original marketing of the movie. It was dubbed Grand Hotel on Wheels in reference to the 1932 film, which is very popular. Which was a big hit, yeah. I love that they're trying to make it, to make you reminiscent of this other successful film when Stagecoach, the John Ford film, would become so influential for everything else to come. Right. Like, you're trying to make it seem like a copy of this other popular movie but it sets the tone for the next century. So right. Speak. You mentioned the influence on Orson Welles, mm-hmm. but every director and their brother has given tribute to John yes. Ford. You have Ingmar Bergman saying he's the best director in the world. Frank Capra saying he's the king of directors. Satyajit Ray saying he's mid, like middle period Beethoven. Yeah. He would influence uh, Fellini, Godard, Hawks, Hitchcock, Kubrick, Kurosawa, Lean, Leone, George Lucas, Peckinpah. Renoir, Scorsese, Spielberg, Truffaut. I could continue talking for the next hour. His influence, yeah, is immense. It cannot be underestimated. Not only in American filmmaking, but but in world filmmaking. Yes, all the the international filmmakers you just mentioned. I mean, yeah, he's had an amazing influence. Yeah. He's the quintessential American filmmaker, but he's also influenced the world. Yeah, Yeah. and Daryl Zanuck later said in... That he thought Ford was the greatest director in history, and that he knew where to mm-hmm. put the camera to tell the story with the setup, with the with to make words you know superfluous. Like yeah. he just knew how to do it. There feels like so much instinct from yes Ford's filmmaking. Yes, in a way where you might watch some other director, and it just feels like a lot of planning and a lot of just overthinking. And, and this just feels like gut. Yes. Like, and Ford also would downplay any artistic pretensions. Right. And any interviewer who asked him anything, he would just shut them down yeah. immediately. But clearly, there is an artistic vision there. Yeah. Now, it does seem like it's from the gut and instinctual. Yeah. But he's clearly trying to make something a work of yeah. art, I think. But that's just thousands of hours of practice yes. that have yes. led him into this point. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's late in his career, 1939, yeah. when he gets right. to this point. And I think that's really when he kicks off into yeah. his, his great, great period. Right. Ford and John Wayne become one of the great actor-director yeah. duos of all time. Yeah. And they would work together many times. Mm-hmm. Ford becomes a legend, you know. He becomes one of the, the, great, right. the great American director, as you said. It, it could have been lost to time. I just wanted to mention that. Yes, yeah. The original <laughs> negative of the film was either lost or destroyed. John Wayne had one positive print that had never been through a projector gate that director Peter Bogdanovich uh, just happened to notice in Wayne's garage while right. he was visiting him. 
1970, Wayne allowed it to be used to produce a new negative, and that's what the film you'll seen today. UCLA fully restored the film in 1996 from whatever was whatever surviving. Was, yeah. So, I mean, there's still, like, it's a little scratchy in parts. Right. But... It doesn't look immaculate. Yeah. But uh, it's But amazing. I just thank your stars that you can see it at all. Because there's a lot of Ford that has been lost yes. to time. I mean, most of his silence are gone. Like, there's very few of his silent westerns that are still right. available. I guess that's the problem with those independent productions of that time yeah. period is no... There's no system in There's place. no system. Yeah, no yeah. one's keeping track of these things. And I think, like, Univer United Artists distributed originally, mm -hmm. and then the rights went to someone mm -hmm. else, and so... Yeah, wasn't it in the public domain I think for, so, like, yeah. a while? Yeah. And, yeah. I think Warner Brothers has the distribution rights yeah. now or something. Check out the Criterion version if yeah. you can. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's the, the version disc, to watch. Yeah. But yeah, we might have lost that. It would have been uh, a tragedy. For what is considered one of the greatest movies right. of all time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I guess that wraps it up for Stagecoach. Thanks for sticking in there with us. Yeah. We, I mean, it's probably a longer one, but um, it means so much to the genre and it means so much to us that we wanted to give it its give it its due. It's time. Yeah. So that's all from me, Felicity. And me, Clarence. And the spirit of Tim Holt. Adios.